All right, so we are in the totally not controversial Romans chapter 9 this morning. <laughs> I am excited about chapter 9, all right? Um, you may not be, but I am. Uh, no, we all are, because it's the Bible. But I want to say, uh, normally I like to just jump right into the text and, and leave the introductions for, for later. But I, I want to say a couple of things going into this about my approach, okay? First of all, I want to acknowledge that chapter 9 and chapter 10 especially seem to kind of contradict each other if you're thinking about it, okay? And I, I'm just, you know, not going to get into it, <laughs> all right? Because number one, I think it's pastorally unhelpful because it gets all complicated and 90% of you don't care. You just want to know what it means, Okay? Number two, I can't preach something I don't believe. So I'm not going to treat this like a seminary class where I say, these people believe this, and these people believe this, and who really knows? All right, that's what tends to happen. You choose for yourself with a shoulder shrug. I'm not doing that because it's not in me to do it, okay? I'm going to preach to you what I believe this says, okay? And if, if you have a different opinion, that is wonderful. Congratulations. You're still a Christian, okay? It's totally fine. If you want to go on the internet and do a deep dive into the bowels of YouTube and, and dredge up, you know, hours-long, you know, exegetical treatments of this text from a hundred different perspectives, you feel free to do that. We're not doing that here, okay? So I'm acknowledging that there's different opinions, but I'm not going to tell you all about them, okay? That's where I'm at, okay? Um, but let me say this about it. Chapter 9 will tell us that it's God's free and sovereign choice that brings us into relationship with him. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Yet chapter 10 will tell us that we are responsible for our own unbelief and rejection of Christ. So God's responsible in chapter 9. You're responsible in chapter 10. Well, which is it? Right? That's kind of the big question. Some will say that chapter 10 explains chapter 9, saying that God did not choose us or them because they rejected him. He looked ahead and saw that they would reject him, and so he did not choose them. Others will say the opposite, saying that the reason so many Jews rejected Christ is because God did not choose them. I think that is closer to the truth, just to put my opinion out there on the table. But I think it's better to let the issue lay where Paul puts it. I think there's a tendency especially by the theology nerds, of which I am one, to just sort of over-explain the mysteries in Scripture. So when, for example, when Jesus says offensive things in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we tend to want to explain how it's not so offensive. What he really meant was, and we start explaining Jesus in a way that Jesus did not explain himself, we have a similar issue here. We have a mystery you have two things that frustratingly don't exactly meld together, and we really, really, really want to solve that mystery. And I'm not going to help you with that very much. I'm just going to preach chapter 9, and then I'm going to preach chapter 10, and I'm only going to explain it in as much as Paul explains it, which is not very much. He basically says, stop worrying about it. And that's frustrating. But I think that's a good place for us to be. Is a little confused, a little off kilter, like, what do you mean? What? Ah! 
and just go, this is, they're both true. And there's a very big difficulty in putting them together. And let me tell you, people have been trying for thousands of years, and no one's really succeeded very well. Okay? So I think that's the humble approach to Scripture. So I want to encourage you to think deeply, to not just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Who can really know? But at the same time, embrace the mystery. Okay? And don't look at me to explain it to you because I'm not that smart. Okay? All right. I just did that entire introduction without looking at my notes. I'm sure I said everything I planned to say. It's been a long week, all right? So, we, in order to understand this, we need to start in chapter 8 where we left off last week. So I'm just going to read this. I'm not going to preach it, re-preach it. I did that last week. If you want to hear more, go back and watch that or listen to it on the website. But let's start in Romans 8, 29 through 30. This is where Paul, or the Holy Spirit through Paul, opens up a can of worms. I opened it up last week. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We called that the golden chain of redemption. The logical chain. And all this is all about salvation. It's about how you, and by salvation, I, I mean it in this, like it's a junk drawer term for everything you get in Christ. Okay? That's the way the Bible uses it. It's not just you becoming a Christian, like we say, I got saved. And what a lot of people mean is, I walked out front and I said a prayer and I gave my life to Christ. That's wonderful news, but that's not all of your salvation. Your salvation is the whole enchilada. Okay? And that chain is how God brings us from non-existence. Pre, before you were born, before the foundations of the earth were laid, he foreknew. He looked ahead and he entered into a relationship with you before you were formed, before you had a chance to do anything at all. And he said, I'm going to bring you all the way through to being like Christ. Okay, that's that chain. That's the goal. That's the glorification. So now into chapter 9. Verses 1 through 5, he says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption of the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is expressing something. If you, if you look at this from a historical perspective, what he's so sad about is that the majority of the Jewish people have rejected Christ as their Messiah. They have rejected the gospel. Paul has been preaching the gospel to them for quite some time. And it's not that every Jew has rejected Christ. It's that wholesale, generally, everyone has, that those people have rejected him. And Paul is, has moved on to the Gentiles. And he is traveling across the Gentile world with the gospel, planting churches. That's really why we're here. Had he not done that, we wouldn't be here. And he's not happy about it. 
he's bemoaning that. He's, he's grieving over that. He says, if I could think of a way to trade places with him, I would do it. He's grieved by it. One, this is, should be our heart for the world. That when people reject the church, it shouldn't be mad because you feel rejected. It should be sadness that they are lost. That should be our heart. And this should also be your heart. If you're praying for Israel right now, which I hope you are, this should be your prayer. Not only a prayer for land or for peace, but also that they would accept Jesus as their Messiah instead of rejecting him. What good is it to gain land and peace but forfeit your soul? We, sometimes we don't pray far enough and we think very earthly and worldly about it in our prayer. I want to encourage you, pray this way. Pray with Paul. So he says, so this is kind of where he's saying, he's not happy about this, but he's saying, I've, I've moved on. My heart is still with them, but I am bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And chapters 9, 10, and 11 are really about that topic, about the place of Israel. And we'll get into that later. Um, in the kingdom of God and in God's redemptive plan. All right, so verse 6 through 9, it says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why is this the question? Because everybody knows, hey, Paul, like you brought this message to these people. They've rejected it. Doesn't that mean that the gospel has failed and that God has failed? This didn't work. You tried to plant a church and it bombed. It failed. You tried multiple times and all they did was cast you out, beat you, reject you, threatened to kill you, made your life miserable, shouldn't you just pack it up, go home, and quit this business? It didn't work. And he's answering that question. Did God fail to come through, or did he not? It's a question all of us, I think, have had at one time or another. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, end quote. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So he is referencing some stories in the Old Testament. The, the Romans would have known what he's referencing Maybe you don't, so let me, let me help you. Verse 8 says that this is not the natural, physical children of Abraham that are the true chosen people. The determining factor is who inherits the promise. In other words, it's not who you were born from. It's not by blood that you get redemption. It's who carries the promise. So it's, so, which would have been controversial for the Jewish people because their belief was, we have all those things Paul listed there at the beginning. We, we're, we come from Abraham. We have the covenants. We know how to worship God. We know how to do all these things. We have the patriarchs. We have the, all these things from God. We even, Paul would say, you even have the Messiah that came from your race. And that's all that's required is to be born with the right parents in the right place. And he would say, no, 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 no. It's not about, it's not by blood, but it is by the promise. Okay, that's the first kind of tier in his argument. And he gives an example of Abraham. Abraham had a son by one of his wives named Hagar, and that son's name was Ishmael. 
Abraham had chosen Ishmael to be the child of promise. So Abraham had decided Ishmael is the one. He's the one that's going to carry the blessing, the covenant that God gave me. But then there's a dispute between Hagar and Abraham's other wife, Sarah. So God spoke to Abraham that he would call, he would call, and that word's important, he would call Isaac, the son of Sarah, to be the child of promise instead. So Abraham makes his decision, then God makes his decision. The question is, whose decision wins? It's always God. That's always the right answer. God always wins. Ishmael does not get the blessings. Isaac does. Isaac was not even born yet. That's also an important detail. And God said he would inherit the promise that he had given Abraham. God gave the promise to someone that did not exist yet. God miraculously created someone that did not exist and brought them into existence from his barren mother who could not have children and said, that one's going to be the inheritance, the one that inherits the promise, not the one that you chose. So redemption is not by blood. That's the first point. Then he says redemption is not by works. Look at verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, there's that word called again. She was told the older will serve the younger or the bigger will serve the smaller. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's the first controversial part of this section. Everybody's fine until you see that word hated. <coughs> Verse 13 there is a paraphrase of Malachi 1, 2 through 3, where the Israelites were beaten down, beleaguered, worn out, frustrated, discouraged, and they asked God, a complaining kind of question, which was, how have you loved us? Don't raise your hand, but how many, think about it, probably all of us at one time or another have said this question to God as a complaint. You say you love me, but how is this love? God's answer to that question in Malachi is, was to say, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And what he's saying is, I have the, the descendants of Ishmael were the Edomites, and they were the enemies of Israel. And he says, have I not done what I promised, which is to protect you from Edom, from Ishmael? And I have blessed you, not just because of you, but because I promised it was Isaac would be the child of the promise, and that is what I have done. So he says, look at your history. Have I not been faithful to protect you and to bless you? That's his answer. It's always God's answer when you're upset, when you're struggling in the moment, is he always lifts your head up and says, look at what I've done for you over your history. Remember what I've done. Am I good or am I not? And that's his answer here. So if you're bothered by the word hated, let me give you a cut, let me help you a little bit. One, you're supposed to be bothered. He's, this is hyperbole. He's trying to stir you up and create an antithetical comparison. Just like Jesus saying, you know, you have to, if, if, if you try to, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your mother and father. 
And you go, well, that seems wrong. I'm not supposed to hate anybody. And you're right. But he's saying, the way you are devoted to me, if you compare it to your devotion to your mother and father, it should look so different and so separate that it's as if you hate them. But I also think we should be more shocked by the word love than the word hate here. Remember chapter 3. No one seeks God. No, not one. We spent like two weeks on that. Because when we get here, we have to remember that. There are no seekers. There's only one seeker, and that was Jesus. Everyone else, we have the moral power to seek God, but we do not have the moral determination. We have the will And we don't use that will to seek God. We use it to seek ourselves. It would be easier if we said no one's able to seek God. No, we say no one's willing to seek God. That's Paul's point. So we get here, and we should be shocked, if we're thinking biblically, that he loves anyone. Because none of these people are good people. Abraham had faith, but boy, he he made some really bad decisions. He went to Egypt not once but twice when God told him not to. And both times went bad. He was not always, he had faith, but he was not always faithful. You read all of these, Isaac's story. Not a, not, a, not a great dude all the time. David, I mean, just all these people who were chosen by God to carry the promise. Not because they were great people. And it should shock us that he says, I love anyone. Because we all deserve wrath. That's the point of Romans 3. So it's okay to be bothered by the word hated. I think we're supposed to be shocked in order to think about it and understand the contrast here. But also we should be shocked by the word love. That he loved Isaac. The point here is redemption is not by works any more than it's by blood. So he's eliminated the two most popular options that they would say redemption comes through. It either comes by blood, where you're born, who you're born to, right, your ethnicity. He says, nope, it's not that. He proves it with their examples. And then he says, it's also not by works. You can't work your way into it. So that leaves our hands empty, doesn't it? If I can't do it by my effort, and I can't do it because who my daddy is, then how can I do it? He's going to answer that in verses 14 to 18. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Because see, this doesn't just, everything I just said begs the question. If it's God's choice, then I think it's unfair that he's choosing. The only one who's completely free is God. Because when God decides, it just is. (laughs) He doesn't doesn't have a a committee meeting with you and say, let's sit down and reason together, and then we'll come to a fair and mutually beneficial conclusion based on what you want and what I want, we'll merge them together. He does not take counsel with you on his decisions. He just does things. And that can make you feel like it's not just. It's not right that I don't get a say. It's not right that my will can't ever trump God's. 
that's not fair and it bothers me and he anticipates the question i think probably people were asking it directly and he says is there injustice on god's part by no means verse 15 for he says to moses i will have mercy on whom i have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i have compassion so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on god who has mercy that's good news god is merciful for the scripture says to pharaoh for this very purpose i have raised you up that i might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills that's the second controversial scripture in chapter 9 he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills the first thing is in verse 15 where he says the word mercy and compassion are not passive verbs it's hard to translate into english but we could say awkwardly he mercies who he whom he mercies and he compassions who he compassions which is not how english works but you get the idea it's what he does it's a verb it's an active verb the example of god hardening the heart of pharaoh is really significant it's not as if god took a righteous man and then turned him wicked which is again what we tend to think that's not fair god you you messed around in pharaoh's heart and and i don't know how that works just leaving that mystery sitting there okay i know it's there i'm just not talking about it we don't know what that means did god directly kind of reach in his heart and harden it like meaning turn it against god and turn it against his people or did he just allow Pharaoh in his already state of, you know, wickedness just to, to, to get harder against his people? Did he just remove his restraint from Pharaoh? And there's lots of debate about that. I lean towards the more direct. But you know what? I don't think it matters. At the end of the day, you still have to wrestle with the fact that God says, God takes credit. He says, I did it. Like, does it make you feel better when something hard or terrible happens to you to say God allowed it? This is what all people always say. Well, God didn't do this. He allowed it. Okay. How does that help you? Does it make you feel better that Jesus sort of stood there passively with his hands behind his back going, I'm allowing I could stop this anytime, but I'm not. I'm allowing it. Okay, that's some nice theological dancing you just did. And I, but it doesn't make me feel better. I still have to wrestle with God. Is God being good to me? Will God make all things work together for my good or not? It's still the question. You still have to wrestle with him. You're not escaping, in my opinion, unless you're just like, I'm not thinking about it, so I'm just going to say God allowed it. For me... Like Job, who said, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. If one day I look down, I get run through with the knife, and I look down and find that it is Jesus' hand on the sword, I still, or someone else's, and he's staying there allowing it, either way, I must say, though you slay me, I will trust you. I will trust in your goodness. And this is the issue Paul is pushing us up against 
So it's not clear if the hardening was direct manipulation of Pharaoh's heart or if God removed his restraint. I don't think pastorally or in terms of real life it matters that much. You still have to wrestle with this issue. It's clear here that God is the initiating will and the most important will in your salvation. You still have to respond, but that's chapter 10. We'll get to that next week. I want to leave you hanging for a week, right? Wrestling over this. God's will is more free than yours. It must always be. He is the bigger will in the room. And and this is clear to me that he's the initiating will. All right, so if you're frustrated, he addresses your frustration, but maybe not to your satisfaction in the next few verses. All right? So let me just acknowledge here for a minute that this is not just a philosophical thing. It might feel that way to you when you're reading it. But all of us have already or will one day encounter a situation that is very painful where this comes to the surface. It will either be over your own salvation. Am I really saved? I've really blown it. You've done something or failed to do something that is epically terrible. And you feel awful. And the question arises in your heart or comes from Satan himself, accusing you and saying, you're not really his. And the question is, how do you answer that? Or, someone you love dies, and there is a question mark over their life. Unlike Charlie, there's a question mark. I had multiple people come up to me yesterday at the funeral saying, I'm so glad there's no question about Charlie. What a blessing that is. And what's implied in that statement is we've all been either at the funeral or have loved someone where there was a question. And this text is vital to that question. This is not just philosophy. This is important stuff. It touches where you live. So verses 19 through 24 Again, Paul anticipates or actually answers a real question. I mean, if I'm hearing Paul teach this in that time, I'd have the same question as I do now. He says, well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? It's not a bad question. If you can't resist God's will, then how is it that God can find fault with those who reject him and sin against him. Well, you didn't use your will to overwhelm them, to call them. How is it their fault? Verse 20, he says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is like Job 
asking God, what are you doing? Where have you been? Why are you doing this to me? He questions God, and God's answer is page after page after page after page of not answering his question so much as saying the answer is, I made everything, I'm in charge of everything. And Job's answer is to say, I put my hand over my mouth. Paul says, we are the lump, (laughs) the lump of clay, and he is the potter, and the pottery is in his hand, and he does with it. Whatever God does with the clay is the right thing to do with the clay. Why? Because he's the potter. He does not explain to us why he does what he does. He doesn't. I wish he did, but I kind of am glad he doesn't at the same time because I don't know what I'd do with that information. Am I the judge of God? Do I put God on the, as C.S. Lewis said, put God on the dock, which is on the witness stand, and accuse him like a lawyer and stand in judgment over what he does and doesn't do with the clay? Does the clay say to the potter, this is not right, I don't like how you've made me, I don't want to be a chamber pot in the kingdom of God, I'd rather be a pot for stew. Or that beautiful pottery like my mother-in-law makes that goes on the shelf and everybody looks at it at how beautiful and shiny and wonderful it is. It's not fair. And God says, I'm the potter. That's his answer. I think it's important here because I'm very tempted to start softening that and explain it. But I think it's important to acknowledge that this is not an incomplete or dismissive answer from Paul. He's not dismissing and waving that question off. He's actually answering it, which is the clay does not have the ability to understand the potter. The clay does not have the capacity to understand what the potter is doing. Therefore, the potter does not explain himself to the clay because it makes no sense. There is a thing in our hearts, I believe, as human beings that is constantly tempted to wrestle for control. We want to wrestle because it is the, it's the fundamental thing in the garden in the fall. Is I want the knowledge, I want the information to judge good and evil for myself, and God never gives us that right. I used to say to my kids, sometimes with a wink and sometimes not so much, I would say, you're not in charge, I'm in charge. It's a basic thing they got to get. You're not, when they're real little, they're in charge of nothing. What they eat, where they sleep, when they sleep, what they wear, what they smell like, how often their diaper gets changed, Everything is completely up to you. And over time, they get more and more in charge of themselves. But is that really true? No. Because God's in charge. He's going to say, I'm not in charge either. God's in charge. So you're not in charge. He's in charge. You're not the potter. You're the clay. The potter is asking you to trust him. And that's 
sometimes incredibly difficult. But it is still what he asks us to do. So Paul changes, slightly changes direction. He doesn't leave the topic, but he provides positive examples. He closes his argument by reminding us that our place in his family is dependent on his free choice. It's not just bad news. It's the foundation of the good news. We cannot have it both ways. Both ways. We cannot be the potter because we need the true potter to call us to himself. We don't have the power to do that. One, my favorite example he gives, there's a couple here. One is in verse 25 through 26. He quotes Hosea saying, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who has not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is what God uses his sovereign power to do. He can do anything. Think about it. He is absolutely free. You cannot control his choices whatsoever. He does what it pleases him to do, and everything he does is perfect and right. And how does he use that power? How does he use his completely free choice? He uses it to call you his people. That's good news. Because he can do whatever he pleases. And he does do whatever he pleases. And he uses that power to say, Jamie, you're mine. Before Jamie's born, he says, that, that Ellswick, he's a mess, but he's my mess, and he calls you to be his own. He says, you're my people. And he gathers us together where the world says, no, nah, you're not God's people. You're not worth anything. You have nothing to offer. You have nothing to, you can't control God. You, you, you're just a bunch of messed up people. Boy, the church is a mess. Can't trust those. There's a bunch of hypocrites. They don't get it. They're out of their depth. They're, they don't understand the times. Blah, 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 blah. But God says, you are my people, period. And so that becomes the answer to the question of how am I his? I am not his because of my free choice. We'll talk about that next week. But if two wills are in the room, mine and God's, God's always wins. Always. That gives me hope. So where do I go to when I see people I love not following him? Do I go and try to convince them to be better? They say, well, you just, if you could just come to church, invite them to church. But if God wills, they will. It is his will that always wins. And so I go to him and I say, Lord, Jesus, use your free will, your free choice to snatch them out of their sin just like he did for me and bring them into your kingdom. Would you just do that? And you can trust his goodness that whatever he does is right. not on you and it's not on me so it's not that you and I don't have the power of will to choose God 
Unfortunately, we do. That's the bad news. Because we do not have the moral determination to do it. We have failed. What we lack is the moral will, you could say, to choose him in any way that can save us from ourselves. There is nothing I am more grateful for than the fact that God's will is more free than mine. It is the bedrock of my faith. So next week, I'm going to muddy the water a bit with chapter 10. But for now, let's thank God for calling us into his eternal family. Why don't we stand up and pray and thank him? And then we'll worship him with one more song. I'd also like to just take a minute. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's I was at a funeral yesterday, or maybe it's these verses or a combination, but I want to just take a minute to pray for the people that are connected to this church family that don't know Jesus. They would have Paul's heart that he had for his Jewish family. That is, he said, man, if, I could, if there was a way for me to trade places, he's under, what he's saying is, if I could go to hell for them, I would. It's a strong statement. But that's the heart I want to come to God with. And also, then we can thank God for what he's done for us. But I don't want to thank him for that and be unaware of where people are. So let's, let's take a minute. And you just put people that come to mind. Just take their names and put them before God. If you want to pray out loud for them, feel free or just in your heart. But let's pray together for them. God, we know that there are many, many, many people that we can identify with in the same way Paul does for his Jewish family. people who have directly or indirectly rejected you. God, we feel our powerlessness, the the weakness of our own will to change that. There's some people we have begged and pleaded with. There's others we have prayed for and tried to think of a way to present the gospel that somehow would bypass all their resistance and their hardness of heart and somehow light a spark of faith in their heart. And we've tried and we've tried. None of it's worked. So God, we put these people before you, all these names that come to our minds. God, we put them before you knowing there is nothing in our power that we can do about it except to pray to the one who can do something about it. No one is too far from you to come home. No one is out of your reach. We have seen that time and time and time again. So, Father, we ask you, would you turn your will to them and snatch them 
from the dirt? Would you take that lump of clay and fashion it into something glorious? Now we ask you, not because of our goodness, but in the name of your goodness. And God, we are so grateful, those of us who are in Christ, we are so grateful for you. That you hold us in your hand, secure and safe. God, no matter what storms come across our way, no matter what hardships we endure, we are held in your hand. God, we acknowledge that this is not because of us. It is not because of our works, and it is not because of where we were born or who we were born to. It is not by anything in us. It is by your will, and we are so grateful for that. So Lord, I pray that as we sing this last song this morning, that joy would come up in our hearts, that you are good, that you have called those who were not your people, you have called them your people. In the name of Jesus, amen.